I invite you tonight to turn back to the book of Nehemiah, chapter 9 is where we're going to be tonight. In the book of Nehemiah, we have examined the character of leadership. We've talked about how God has called all who know him to be leaders for him, to make a difference, to make an impact, to have influence on others for the cause of the kingdom of God. And we've seen in the life of Nehemiah, one who lives um, all out for God, doing everything that he can in his power, while at the same time depending on God in all things. And, and last time we were together um, looking at this, a couple weeks ago, the book of Nehemiah kind of took a turn. Um, as we have gone from the restoration of the city of Jerusalem to the restoration of God's people in their hearts. And so we're going to continue looking at that. Um, last time, it was, the focus was the importance of the Word of God and properly responding to God's Word in our lives. And we looked at, at the people's hunger for the Word of God and their obedience of the Word of God. And we left kind of this, we kind of left the people of Israel, though, convicted and in their sin at the same time. And we'll talk about that here in just a second. And so Nehemiah chapter 9 actually is all about that, about how we properly respond to sin in our own lives. Sin is a very, it can be a very uncomfortable topic. Um, it can be a topic that, that sometimes, you know, you'll actually hear people in churches, they'll say, well, we just don't talk about sin. You, you can't get away from sin, though. It's something that, that we live and we struggle with all the time. And so if we're going to be followers of, of God and we're going to have a proper and right relationship with God, we have to understand how it is we respond to sin in our own lives. Uh, because we can't have a, a right relationship with God if we don't deal with it in the way he wants us to. I mean, I don't know about you, but I hate it in my life when I, when I have a failure, my own failure to do something catches up with me in, in what I call the pileup of life. Um, maybe it's something like the mountain of laundry, the house chores, the messy desk, all of these things, they would just take a few minutes in our lives, right, if we handled them. But, but what happens is we push them off and they turn into hours of work, right? Uh, my kids and I this weekend uh, on Friday, it was my day off, and uh, we engaged in a top-to-bottom clean of our house. It's just every once in a while you got to do that, right? And, uh, and so I mean, we, did, we spent most of our day just working through, you know, going through all the rooms and, and cleaning our house. And um, it's, it's those little things. You know, we talked about that along the way. I talked to my kids about that. Hey, this would just take you a few minutes if you did this every day. And it wouldn't take so long later on. The weight of those things that are pushed off, what happens sometimes is they seem to, to paralyze us and they keep us from getting anything done because we have so much we have to get done. Spiritually, we can get in a lot of trouble if we just kind of let things pile up in our lives. And by that I mean this. God, God convicts us of sin in our lives. He shows us what we need to do in order to be right with him. But we don't do it. You know, perhaps we are convicted of, of something at a time we can't do anything about it. And maybe we're sitting in a, in a church service and God is really working on our heart about something. Or maybe uh, we're sitting, uh, we're, we're in the middle of a conversation and God uses something that's said in a conversation to really bring back something in our minds that we need to, to do something about. And so physically we're just unable 
to go and actually do something with the word, with with what whatever God is convicted us of, and you know we'll think, okay, well I'll get to that later, and we we never do it. Perhaps we make excuses why we don't need to deal with them. I mean, whatever the case is, the next thing we know, we find ourselves with a seemingly overwhelming, maybe we could use the word backlog of sins, and we feel lost and confused and even abandoned by God. And it's not that, you know, well. I didn't make that right, and so now I'm not going to heaven. But I can't have a, a, a right and proper and open relationship with God because I won't deal with these things. And now it's just kind of, well, there's so much there to unpack it all. But God's mercy is greater. And in the bleakest of moments, he shines through and shows us the way back to himself. And, and, and against the dark backdrop of sin in our lives... The, the mercy of God shines so bright. And we see that in the lives of the Israelites. This is what happened in the city of Jerusalem in Nehemiah's day. God's people came face to face with the fact that they had not lived up to God's standard and they were overwhelmed by their sin. In Nehemiah chapter 8, that's what we saw. They were overwhelmed by their sin. They, they left the reading of God's word and they were mourning. But if you remember, if you were here with us... Um, the, the, Nehemiah and the leaders of the city came and said, no, no, don't do that. This is a time of rejoicing. This is a time to come back to God because they were right in the middle of the, of the Feast of, of Trumpets and the Day of Atonement and the Feast of Tabernacles was, was just around the corner. And these were supposed to be times for the nation of Israel where they rejoiced, where they, where they rejoiced in what God had done. And, and, and literally, I mean, it was commanded that this was a time of rejoicing. And so they need to obey God. They need to follow him. And so they, they, they had to postpone this national revival, this citywide revival that was going on because of these things. Now, here in the seventh month, after hearing and responding properly to God's word, we see the people properly responding to their sin in their, in, in their own lives. And we see that, that God's people must deal with sin God's way so that they may enjoy unbroken fellowship with him and see him do a mighty work in their lives. I use this term, God's people, because it starts with the, the nation of Israel in the, in the immediate context of your passage, but, but the same principles of what we're seeing in the lives of Israel carry over to those who belong to God in Christ Jesus today. You and I have to deal with sin the way God says to, that we may enjoy open, unbroken fellowship with God. We, we sang at the end of the service this morning, nothing between my soul and the Savior. And, and <clears throat> at salvation, there is nothing between us and eternity. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you will spend eternity in heaven. But is there anything else that we allowed into our lives that keeps us from having that relationship, that open and, and blessed relationship with God. And we can see him do a mighty work in our lives if we deal with sin the way he tells us to. And so we're going to unpack this passage, and uh, we may not get through it all tonight, but that's okay. Uh, we have communion in a couple of weeks, and, and we can finish it as we look at that. But we're going to see exactly what God does in the lives of his people and how they deal with these things um, and, and how God uses that to draw them back to himself.
And so the first thing we see in, in the first part of this chapter is the conviction over sin by the people. Look at Nehemiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 4. Now, on the 24th day of this month, that is the seventh month, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting in sackcloth and with dust on their heads. Then those of Israelite lineage separated themselves from all foreigners. And they stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for one-fourth of the day. And for another fourth they confessed and worshipped the Lord their God. Then Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, and Chenani stood on the stairs of the Levites and cried out with a loud voice to the Lord their God. What you see under this conviction of sin is first that, 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 that there is a time to get right that has come to the nation of Israel. Last time we said we, we saw the people and their proper response to God's word. They came eager. They came hungry to hear God's word. They, they let its truth and the meaning of God's word sink deep into their hearts. And we see that because they came back again and again to hear the truth of God's word. And they went out and obeyed the word of God. And because of this response... True revival could begin in the hearts of God's people. True revival in God's people, a, 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 a manifestation of God's work in our hearts, begins with a proper response to the word of God, begins with us hearing God's word. But true revival and true reformation doesn't, ha, doesn't stop with a recognition of and a listening to God's word. That's just the beginning. And last time, like we said, we saw the people's reaction of mourning that was stopped by the leaders of Jerusalem because it wasn't a time to mourn. They were to rejoice in God's goodness and to prepare their hearts to obey him. So after they've kept the Feast of Tabernacles, we, we saw them during that feast rejoicing and listening eagerly to God's word. We see that when the people were, were finished with the feast, they, they were not finished growing in the Lord. Instead, they, they longed ever more to be right with God. You see, there's an emerging um, consciousness of sin amongst all of the people in Jerusalem. And that, by the way, is a true sign that God is doing revival amongst his people. There is a, there is a, a, a corporate consciousness of sin. It's not just one person or two people, but, but as a whole, the people are, are feeling this burden of their sin. There could be no revival if we're not willing to call out sin in our lives and address it. And it is interesting to note that Nehemiah delayed this step amongst, among the people. And in so doing, I believe what you see here is the true nature of conviction over sin. When God uses his word and his spirit to convict a heart of sin... That feeling doesn't go away. There's a great temptation in our lives, even if as we may share the gospel with somebody else, that we need to make some great emotional push and get someone over the proverbial finish line and just let's get them into the kingdom of God. Right? And so, so we use all these wordings and we use all these phrases and we use all these things and, 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 we, and we're trying to, to make, make sure it, it happens. But the thing is, it's not up to us. It's God's work. Now, that, sh that doesn't mean we shouldn't communicate the urgency 
or the imminency of making a decision for the Lord. I mean, we're not promised tomorrow, let alone this evening, right? But at the same time, realize that if God is working, he will continue to do so. We need not finagle people into the kingdom. You know, if I could just personally illustrate this for you, this is the personal approach that I, as a dad, have taken with my own kids. Um, my kids have grown up in the home of a pastor. I mean, you know, people call them PKs, pastor's kids. You know, y'all pray for them, okay? And, and so they have been around the things of God their entire life. I mean, they were practically born in church. And they've heard the things of church. They've heard the things in family devotions. They've, they've listened to mom and dad talk about the gospel and so my, our two older kids at a very young age begin to ask questions, uh, the, the things about they're hearing in children's church or in Sunday school. They, they're asked questions about the gospel. And, and I just tell you personally, for me, um, I, I didn't push my kids. Um, I, I answered the questions. I, I pointed them to the, to the Bible. Uh, but, but frankly, um, when, when I have a kid, especially you know, four or five years old, and, and they're asking a lot of questions, I, I, I often actually thought to distract my kids when they came into my office or came to talk to me about these things. You look at me and say, what are you, some monster who wants to send your kids to hell? No, I want to make sure what they're doing is genuinely listening to the Spirit of God working in their lives and not trying to make a decision to make dad happy. Kids are very emotional. Kids are very want to please you. And so personally, in my own life, I've just taken this approach that if God is truly working in their life, they're going to be ready. And, and, And and we get to this point where they just kind of look at you, and they're like, what do you, will you stop? I'm trying to get right with God. And, and so just in my own life, this is a practice that, that we've taken to, to see God truly working in their hearts. Because the Spirit of God can work in young children as well as in adults, but it needs to be the Spirit working and not man. God has obviously been hammering away at the hearts of his people in Nehemiah. When we get to Nehemiah chapter 9, we continue to see that. They assemble here two days following the Feast of Tabernacles, and this assembly looks much different than the last time they were together. Because this time when they come together, they're dressed in sackcloth. A sackcloth is a dark, coarse cloth that was made from goat's hair. They have ashes or or they have earth on their their heads, um, and they have fasted. And all of this is done to show mourning and grief. And what is it that they are mourning? They are mourning their sin. And we see that the separation that takes place, if you remember back in Nehemiah chapter 7, there was this accounting of the people, those who truly belonged to Israel, and then there was that group that they weren't really sure where they came from. Those whose lineage has been confirmed, and they know they're a part of God's people, take the steps then to make their sin right with the Lord. They begin to confess their sin. I think it's really interesting here in verse um, 2 of chapter 9 what they're doing. It says, they stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities, finish that phrase, of their fathers or ancestors. You know, there is a refreshing ownership of their sin before God. Too often, when sins of the fathers are mentioned, it is an excuse or a license for why we are who we are. 
Too often, previous generations are blamed for the sins of the current generation. Well, you know, I didn't grow up in a godly home. Well, you know, my dad, he has the same temper. Well, my mom, she just didn't really love me the way she should have. You know, I've, I've gone through a lot of counseling and therapy because of the way my home was. These are all excuses and more that are used, right, to, 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 to justify in our minds why we are the way we are. Folks, the why we are the way, the why we are the way we are is because we're sinners, we are born sinners. And does our upbringing and, our, and our, our life circumstances have effects on how we view those things? Well, sure it does. But at the end of it all, we don't get an excuse before God for our sin because we feel like we have some extenuating circumstances. At the end, we're still responsible for our sins. True revival cannot begin until we are willing to take ownership of sin. The people and their forefathers had sinned, and they are now admitting that before the Lord. Confession, we use that word a lot when we talk about sin. Confession is saying the same thing about our sin that God does, that it is wrong and that it offends him, that it puts us at odds with him. And so the people begin to work through God's law and confess their sin to God. We read here that they stood and read from the book of the law for three hours And then for another three hours, they stood and confessed their sin and worshiped God. This is another mark of true revival. God's word is central to the confession of sin. At the end of the day, God's word is the final answer on what is right and what is wrong. If we want to be right with him, we must be consumed with what he has said and what must be done about what is wrong. You know what defines sin? The law of God, not man. And so the people hear God's law and they respond accordingly. The time to get right with the Lord has come. And so God's leaders engage with God's people. And we see that it is a time to pray. Prayer is vital, is vital to a proper response to sin. God's followers, those who, who, who belong to him, must pray. That's how we commune with our Heavenly Father. And if you show me a proclaimed follower of God who doesn't pray, I will show you one who does not experience the power and blessing of God in their life. God's leaders in Jerusalem engage God's people then in an incredible prayer. And and I think that our prayers would benefit greatly from attention given to this prayer. If you've ever felt like your prayers have gotten stale, if you've ever felt like you just don't know how else to pray, if you've ever felt like you you want a different approach to prayer, then go through the scriptures and read the prayers of God's people. And so here is one of those prayers all through the rest of this chapter. This is an authentic prayer to God. It is a prayer of experiential knowledge of who God is. It's not rote. It's not some trite checking of a box. Hey, I said my little prayers. It is truly engaging with the one these people know well and the one that they long to be right with. And so we're going to take the rest of this message and we're going to examine that prayer. And so what we see 
first in that prayer is a consciousness of God's nature in verses 5 and 6. It says, And the Levites, Jeshua, Cadmiel, Bani, Hashabaniah, Sherebiah, Hodijah, Shebaniah, and Pethahiah said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God forever and ever. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You have made heaven, the heavens of heavens with all their host, the earth and everything on it, the seas and all that is in them. And you preserve them all. The host of heaven worships you. The first thing we see is in this prayer is, is the glory of God that is exalted. So, starting with chapter 8, in the first day of the seventh month, and, and all the events that are there, including the Feast of Tabernacles, the people have just soaked in the Word of God. And, and, and for them, understand the Word of God was the Pentateuch, the, the first five books of the Old Testament, primarily the law of God. And it shows Because their prayer that the Levites offer on their behalf is all but a recounting of the history of God in this world and specifically then in the nation of Israel. See, God's word should point us back to who God is and bring us low before him. This prayer begins as such, ascribing praise and glory to the sovereign Lord. God's name deserves the highest and greatest blessing and exaltation in our lives. And in our prayers, it should be as well. We should offer him true praise and worship. He is the only God, and he alone deserves our praise. And Israel, we're going to see, struggled with that concept time after time after time. If you know anything about the history of Israel, you already know that's the case. But as Israel struggled, so do we. We struggle to give God his rightful place in our hearts as we give honor to other things in our lives. As I said last Sunday morning um, in our our message from Judges chapter 6 and looking at the life of Gideon and him attacking, God God sending him to to attack the altar of Baal in his own town, we we make fun or we we, we laugh at the, the idols that people worshiped, but understand we have our own idols, we just think they're more sophisticated than other people's. What we listen to most and what we pursue above all else is what holds the greatest value in our hearts. Coming before God in prayer rightly means submitting ourselves to him above all else. And so they open here then with a treatise on God's creative power. The main section of this prayer begins with a recounting of God's creation and his preservation of all things. Um, Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 often fall in the crosshairs of many secular scholars in our day. They are the battleground of Christianity as we hold fast to the truth of Scripture that God is our creator. But Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 are not merely academic facts and they're not merely a battleground for our faith. You know, beyond that, they are not just a recounting of God's creation, although they certainly do give us these things. Instead, Genesis 1 and 2 should fill us with wonder of who God is as we witness his power, his might, and his creativity. It is here in Genesis 1 and 2 we are introduced to God and what he can do. It is here that we learn our origin and our purpose for this life. 
And we see the amazing things that he has given us. And we realize that we owe our every breath to him, our glorious creator and sustainer. God's creative power and might set the tone for our relationship with him. God's creative power and might set the tone for our relationship with him. And what is the tone? He is in control. Which, by the way, is a God with a little g that many of us really wrestle with. We want to be in control. And Genesis 1 and 2 communicate something very opposite of that. The creation worships God, and so should we. This week, um, Chloe um, was, 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 we were in the kitchen one day, and she was asking Elizabeth and I about a verse she had heard, probably in Sunday school or something like that. She wanted to know all about what it meant. And the Bible talked about trees clapping their hands. You read that in the scriptures and the Psalms about, about the trees, and, and in Isaiah chapter 55, and And so we had this great discussion about what that means. And one of my favorite passages on this is in Psalm 148, where it talks about all about how God's creation gives glory and praise to its creator. And how does it do that? By doing the things God has told it to do. Every day when the sun rises and, and it shines and gives forth its light, it is doing what God created it to do. It is giving honor to its creator. And so should we worship our creator. But here's the thing. Our having a creator has ramifications on our lives. Because if you have a creator, you're accountable to that creator. When when we make something, okay, when we as as human beings create, you know, even just something as simple as, um, not really simple, but, but something like a, a, a watch, right? Think of a watch manufacturer. In essence, that watch is accountable to the person who created it, right? I mean, go with me here for a second. I mean, if you, if you have a watch and it's, and it's not like El Cheapo Walmart, okay? But it's a nice watch. And something goes wrong with it, you know, you've just had it for a little while and, and it quits working, what do you do? You take it back, or you, you contact the manufacturer. Why? Because somebody's accountable. They, they created that. And if it's a company of any quality, they stand behind their products. God has created us. We're much more complex than a watch. We're accountable to him. We have an obligation to our creator. This is why, by the way, there are so many attempts to rid ourselves of God in public consciousness. Why do you think our world doesn't want the things of God in the world? Because that reminds us we have a creator and we're accountable to him. Why do you think we want the Bible out of schools? Why do you think we don't want the Ten Commandments in the courthouses Why do you think we don't want to worry about when life begins or not? Because it means that somebody else is in control. That somebody else is telling us what's right and what's wrong. So we have to try to eradicate God out of our public consciousness. And again, we're pretty good at doing this in our own private lives as well. 
well, God, I mean, that's, that's my thing. I don't have to worry about that, right? I mean, I can, I'm in control of that. I'm in control of this. I oversee that. I mean, look at a guy like the rich young ruler in, in Matthew chapter 19. When Jesus says, if you want to be right, go and sell all that you have and give to the poor. He wasn't telling him to, to, to buy his way into heaven. He was telling him to relinquish the, the thing that, that he did not want to give God control over. Those are the things that he owned. He then went away sad because he had great possessions, the Bible tells us. Jesus put his finger on the very thing in that man's life. And, and God does that to us. He, puts, the, he put his, puts his finger on the things of our lives that we don't want to give him. And he calls us out on it. And what we need to say is, is, God, everything I have is yours anyway. How can I use it to serve you? And so we set the tone with a consciousness of God's nature that, that he is the creator, he is in control, and he is in charge, and then the prayer flows from there. And, and what you see in the, in the largest section of the prayer is this idea of contrast and confession. This goes from verse 7 all the way to verse 31. Don't worry, we're not going to read it all at one time. We're going to break it up in little sections and see what, what, what goes on here. But, but the recurring theme of this prayer is God's goodness and Israel's unfaithfulness. And the bulk of this prayer is a recounting of Israel's history and specifically her experiences with God. Throughout history, he has been faithful and she has been unfaithful. Yet God in his mercy, or God's mercy is seen on display in how he has responded to her. And the main focus of this prayer isn't even the sin of the people, although that's a, that is a heavy focus. It's really the actions of God. In several sections of this passage, God's actions take that main focus. And so again, a recognition of who God is and what he's done, th- those are vital to our right relationship with God. If you don't understand who God is and what he's done and what he requires of you, you, you cannot be right with God. So it starts in verses 7 and 8 with God's creation of a nation. You are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made a covenant with him to give the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, and the Gilgashites to give it to his descendants. You have performed your words for you are righteous. God first showed his love for his people in creating his people. We have here the story of a man named Abram, whom God called to himself. He brought Abram to a new land, and there he gave him a new name. Abram means exalted father, which became very ironic because Abram didn't have any kids. But God promised Abram descendants greater than the stars in the sky and greater than the sands of the, of, the, of the shore. And he gave Abram a new name, Abraham. So he went from exalted father to father of a multitude. Can you imagine the looks that he got sometimes? Because names are very important, right? Hello, I'm Abraham. This is Sarah. Oh, you're a father of a multitude. How many kids do you have? Well, we don't have any. And the guy's 90-something years old. And the Bible's very clear that, that he was past the time of having children, he and his wife both. 
God promised Abraham a son, and God delivered. God found Abraham, it says, to be a faithful and true servant. And the nation of Israel was founded on this promise, to give Abraham innumerable descendants and to bless all the nations of the earth through Abraham's lineage and to give Abraham's descendants the land of Canaan. And to this end, God proved faithful. Though the descendants of Abraham would be enslaved for 400 years, which is, by the way, something God told Abraham, he would give them the land he promised. It says at the end of verse 8, you have performed your words for you are righteous. You see, God is righteous in that he is perfectly right in all he does and he is perfectly trustworthy in all that he says. God always delivers on his promises. God always does what he says he will do. And this next section picks up the theme from here and continues it. So we have God's creation of a nation, but then in verses 9 through 12, we have God's deliverance of that nation. You saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry by the Red Sea. You showed signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his servants, and against all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted proudly against them, so you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. As it is this day, and, and you divided the sea before them, so they went through the midst of the sea on the dry land, and their persecutors you threw into the deep as a stone into the mighty waters. Moreover, you led them by day with a cloudy pillar, and by night with a pillar of fire to give them light on the road which they should travel. This section gives us a brief look at what we call the Exodus. God heard the cries of his people, they were in torment enslaved under Egyptian masters. And God, they felt like God was so far away and he had forgotten them, but God had not forgotten them. And as he promised to Abraham, he came and delivered them. And in so doing, God brought a world power to its knees. This passage here, I mean, just... just kind of sums it all up. I think it's one of the most amazing and powerful pictures. When it talks about the final blow that God levied against the people of Egypt at the Red Sea, I mean, so, so, so here was Egypt that was high and mighty, and, and she, she exalted her gods and flaunted her power in the face of God. I mean, that is what Pharaoh did time and again. But God did mighty works throughout Egypt and freed his people. We read about that in Exodus, about the plagues that he sent and how finally they were allowed to go out. And at the Red Sea, a crushing blow was delivered to Egypt and God's people journeyed on. It says there at the end of verse 11, And their persecutors you threw into the deep as a stone into the mighty waters. You ever... um, I don't know, maybe it's a guy thing. I, I like going out and taking big rocks and like chucking them in a lake somewhere. You ever done that? Men? Isn't that awesome? Yeah. Right, Caleb? Makes you feel manly. But here it is, someone works so hard to get that rock and you just check it, chuck it out in the middle and it makes a big splash, right? Okay, take that picture, right? The big rock you just chucked out there, it was awesome. That is what God did to a premier world power. 
literally at the, at, the, at the Red Sea, took the armies of Egypt and threw them out in the middle of the sea, and they were gone. After he had decimated their crops, after he had decimated their livestock, after he had decimated their heritage, all because why? Let's go back a few verses and see why this came about. For you knew, middle of verse 10, or end of verse 10, for you knew that they acted what? Proudly against them. The pride of the Egyptians was met with God's judgment. Do you know what is superior above everything else? The glory of God. Pride is an ugly root of sin. Pride claims its way is best and God's way is not. And pride will always lead us to being at odds with God and in the path of his judgment and chastisement. Egypt was a proud nation. Egypt's leader, time and again, turned his back on what God was telling him. And so God dealt a crushing blow to Israel's enemy and led her with his constant presence. He showed them the way to go in the promised land. We we see here in in the pillar of fire, in the cloudy pillar that he led them the way they should travel. So, so what do we see in this section? What is it that, that, that stirs our hearts to a right relationship with God to get rid of sin in our lives? Well, we see God's omniscience. God knows all things. He knew his people. He knew the trouble they were in. He heard their cries. He knew what it would take to get them out. We see God's omnipotence, his, his all-powerful nature, I mean, who else can rain down plagues on a nation like that? Who else can, can, can preserve his people? Who else can open the Red Sea and destroy the enemy? We see his righteousness and his mercy God had on his own. And then we see in verses 13 through 15, as we continue on in the story of, of Israel, we see God's precepts and his preservation. You came down also on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them just ordinances and true laws, good statutes and commandments. You made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them precepts, statutes, and laws by the hand of Moses, your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought them water out of the rock for their thirst and told them to go to, the pro- to possess the land which you had sworn to give them. God brought his people to Mount Sinai and gave them the law that they would may know how they should serve him. God's justice and God's goodness are highlighted by the giving of the law. It's, it's interesting here. I mean, the, the Levites here, they talk about God's law. You, you gave them just ordinances and true laws, good statutes and commandments. That goes against the grain of sinful human nature. We typically look at rules as bad things, as commandments, as obstacles to what we want to do. But the laws of God are good. Why? Because God's ways are always best. He instituted that which was necessary for the people to properly serve him and to live with one another. He, He showed them his holy standard, and he used Moses to instruct them in his ways. 
See, God has not hidden himself from man, but openly revealed who he is and what he expects. So God's law is not evil, it is good. It's a revelation of God. And then God showed his goodness and care by not just giving them his law, but providing for his people on their journey. He miraculously fed them with food that fell out of the sky in manna and the quail. He gave them water from impossible places. There was the polluted water, the bitter water that that, that God used a tree in a miraculous way to, to cleanse. There was the rock that gave them water on more than one occasion. And then he brings them to the precipice of the promised land and calls for their progression into that land. See, the picture is clear. God is worthy to be followed. God is worthy of our entire life's devotion. And so sin is an obvious rebellion against a good and glorious and gracious God. It is so painfully obvious. And that is exactly the picture that is intended to be painted. So so this whole time, these first few sections build up for us this picture. That God is good, that God is powerful, that God is our creator and our sustainer. He is the one we are accountable to. He is a good God who has given us his laws. He's a God who's provided for his people. He's a God who's given his people victory. He's a God who's done exactly what he said he would do. And so to, re- to, to not follow him would be obvious rebellion. It would be obvious sin. The people are about to call sin, sin. They're not painting themselves with, well, you know. They're being very open about it. Hey, this is who you are. This is who we are. And starting in verse 16, we see that. But you're going to have to wait till next time. If you're dying and can't wait, you can read ahead. But what we want to take away from from tonight's passage is, is this. We go back to what we said at the beginning. God's people must deal with sin in God's way so that they may enjoy unbroken fellowship with him and see him do a mighty work in their lives. Nothing is so great a relationship killer with God as sin. God hates sin. And so when we entertain sin in our lives, we will find it impossible to live at peace with God This doesn't mean that God doesn't love us or that he won't even still intercede on our behalf, even when we do not know it, but it does mean we cannot enjoy the blessing of walking him, basking in his presence. And so we need a proper view of who God is so that we can have a proper view of ourselves. And how do we do in our own lives and specifically our prayer lives at that? How do we do at properly framing in who God is? What he's done. Our responsibility to him because of that. Our prayer lives would probably all benefit from a greater view of who God is. And we can't manufacture that. 
We, we can't sit down in the chair on a, on, a, on a Monday morning and just come up with, well, who is God? Do you know where you have to go if you want this view of God? You got to go here. That's what the people did. They read through the law. They, they read through the, 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 the account of the Exodus. They, they, they listened to the things of God and what he had done. That's what the author of Psalm 78 did, by the way. He, they, they looked at who God is from his word. That's what we have to do. If we want a proper view of sin, if we want to properly deal with, with, with the things of God, and we want, to, we want to see God do great things in our lives, we have to know him. We have to be overwhelmed by him. We have to be amazed at, at who he is. And that takes time. That takes building a relationship. That takes genuinely sitting down and asking God to teach you. Not just, okay, God, I'm going to check in for five minutes and hope you fix my problems. God, I want to know you. I want to spend time with you. Only then can God begin to do this incredible work because only then can God begin to, to mold our hearts into his. So next time we'll, we'll finish the, the look at, at the, proper, the proper view of our sin and the proper response that we're to have to God when he does show us sin. But understand, tonight, this is where we are. That we need this, it has to start with seeing God for who he is. That we can be on the path to that right relationship, unbroken fellowship with him. Lord, thanks for your love for us. Thanks for the opportunity to study your word tonight. Thank you for the example of your people. Lord, uh, your people, Israel, they weren't always faithful. They were far from perfect. And thus, they provide to us an excellent example. Because we're not faithful we're not perfect. We struggle. Lord, we ask that you'd help us to be willing to know you and in knowing you, be willing to be right with you. Would you fill us with a view of who you are? Would you draw us closer to yourself? Lord, we ask that you would bless us now as we close out this service and we go into the week ahead of us. We've got a lot of things between now and some of us, now and tomorrow, now and next Sunday, and there's a lot of opportunities as well to live for the kingdom. We ask that you would help us to do so. In your name we pray.